0: I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903 five, eight, six, six, five, two, zero. If you would like to support the ministry here at fellowship Bible church, we would greatly appreciate that as well to give one time or on a regular basis. You can text give to nine Oh three, five, eight, six, six, five, two, zero. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Good morning, congregation. It is fantastic to be here with y'all. I've been on the road for seven, seven and a half weeks, meeting a lot of new faces driving around this great country. Uh, But it is great to be back in a place where I also meet some familiar faces uh, and also new ones again. This is the last part of my, uh, my mission tour around this country uh, before I head back to my home country, Canada, briefly, and then I return to Nigeria. Um, so I'm really grateful to be here with you morning. this morning. I've been here since Friday, spending a good bit of time with your pastor, and you, you really are blessed to have that man. Uh, it's been a great time with him and his family and just talking, and uh, I'm so glad to be here. Well, why don't we uh, come together to the Word and open with you, Will, uh, with me to Matthew chapter 28... We're going to go to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, uh, verse 16 through 20. The title of today's sermon is, The Greatness of the Great Commission. Sometimes we we glance over it, we're so familiar with it, we've heard these words, many of us all our lives, Uh, maybe some of us were new believers, we've only heard them recently, but we still tend to just gloss over it and not think through the full implications of what it means, but also what it's actually saying sometimes. So I want to walk through this text today. Matthew 28, verse 16 through to the end of verse 20. This is the Word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of days. So far ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's set the scene for a moment as we come to this text. Some of us, I would imagine probably all of us, have lost a loved one. Someone very deep to us. Someone that when we lost them, it broke us. And it didn't just break us, we we couldn't fathom that moment of maybe seeing them again. What will that be like? What will it be like to meet the person you've loved most and lost in this world? This is the scene that we are entering into here. These 11 disciples, and we know there's more from the the other texts and the other Gospels. It's not just the 11, there are others there. They're in anticipation. It's a suspense-filled scene. What is going on? We've, we've heard these rumors. right? And if we read even just the verses prior to this, we know that the, the Jewish leaders had told the soldiers, go and tell other people that, that this, the guards came and took Him. That His apostles sorry, came and took Him at night. And so there's a rumor going around that maybe He's been stolen. So they're, they're here, they're gathered together because they've been told to meet here but they don't know what exactly to expect. And I'm sure if someone were to tell you that the person you loved most had risen back from the dead and was coming to meet you at a place that you're familiar with, you're going to say, what? Yeah, right. I, I doubt that. It would be lovely. It would be like a dream coming true, but I don't think that's possible. This is the scene. Some believe, some are doubting, but it's an eager situation. It's suspense-filled. It's overwhelming. And then, boom! He walks in. I mean, I can't imagine that moment when they saw Him and He comes through. And when Jesus walks in, remember, the last thing they saw when they saw their Lord was a lamb being slaughtered. They saw someone in perfect meekness Perfect humility, perfect sacrifice in lowliness dying on their behalf. But they didn't quite get it yet. And when he walks in, the first thing he says to them is, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a different Jesus. This is not the Jesus who just died on the cross. This is no longer the I can do nothing myself Jesus Christ. This is now the King of Kings about to be coronated and take His rightful place as King over all things. He's coming in with authority. He's commanding. We need to notice that right away because that would have hit them. We haven't heard our Lord Our friend, our brother, speak this way to us before, with such zeal, with such authority. But that's how he comes in, and we know that the reason Jesus can speak in this manner is because, as I just said, he's about to be coronated, right? If we're familiar at all in this text with a a correlating text in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter seven, verse thirteen and fourteen, gives us the scene. When Jesus ascends, we all know what's about to happen here. The text says it. He ascends into heaven after he gives the Great Commission. He goes in the clouds. And if you go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, I'll read it for you so you don't have to turn there. It records the heavenly side of these events. So here in this text we see the earthly side. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel received a vision from God about the Son of Man being seated at the right hand of power. Let me read that for you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. This is after his commission. This is as he's ascending. This is what's happening. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is everlasting, dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Christ comes in with a commanding presence because, and I, I like how uh, sometimes they put it in Lord of the Rings, these are the days of the King. We live in the days of the King. We no longer live in that ancient world. And if you study a bit of history and you look at ancient cultures, your pastor and I were having a conversation about that last night. What the world is like without the king. I live in a world that doesn't yet know the king. And let me tell you, it is overwhelmingly black. We take cleanliness for granted, we take running water. We take electricity. We take the comfort of our homes. And we look around us sometimes and we look at our culture and we say it's burning. But we haven't yet really understood the impact that Christ has had on our world. On our culture. We would not be living in these kind of lifestyles if our culture hadn't submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what is going on here in this text. He is coming to us as the king, and he's saying, I have brought you the new creation. I have initiated my kingdom. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 18. He says this Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the old, the new, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what Christ has come to do. He came to save the world. He came to reconcile the world to Himself. And now as the King of Kings ascending to the right hand of authority to be God's arm, He has begun His rule and He is in the process of reconciling all things to Himself. It's quite a very different world than I think sometimes we have in our minds. We often like to think the world is just burning. Everything seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. But we are too quick to identify the kingdoms of men with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not burning. Christ brought a kingdom into the world. That was the theme he preached on time and time again in his parables. The kingdom is like a this. The kingdom is like a this. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, which starts small and grows in unexpected ways, but will slowly infest the entire world. And I can tell you with absolute confidence, when I even look at the Western world today, regardless of a culture that seems to be burning, the kingdom is growing. In fact, I see something happening very different when I come back now. I see... I don't like the word necessarily revival, but something like that's happening. And certainly in the southern hemisphere, you can see that the global centers of Christianity as they're shifting to other parts of the world, oh, it's growing. I'll get to share a little bit more about that later. Let me continue with the text. The second thing I want us to notice right away, in this this phrase, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. On earth. The scope of, Of the gospel's authority is as broad as the scope of sin. The curse infected all things, did it not? Satan's rebellion in history has affected all things, has it not? Why would Christ bring redemption into history if it too was not going to impact everything? And that's exactly what he said. This word here, this word all, all right, in the Greek. It's used in the distributive sense. Distributive, meaning it pertains to all types of authority. Everything is under his lordship. Everything. Not just your personal salvation. It begins with you. Christ came into the world to save sinners, but it doesn't end there. And if we stop the gospel there, we have what we call a truncated, a compromised gospel. He came into the world to save sinners so that they could go and be his instruments of redemption, his instruments of reconciliation of all things. That's the ministry that's been commissioned to us. Satan did not need an earthly throne to rule, did he? He didn't have an earthly throne. Why does Christ need an earthly throne? Christ rules through his church, and we're going to come back to that. Because this great commission is is not necessarily completely new. It's been given to us before in somewhat different words, and it's been modified now. But if you go right back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, the first command given to Adam was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And once again, notice the scope of authority. It's over all things. And here again, Christ covers everything. In the beginning, Adam was to- told to go into the world and build God's kingdom. And once again, Christ is restating that commission, but now he's given man the ability to do it. The curse, the fall prevented us from being able to fulfill that mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the world under the lordship of the king. Christ had to come. He had to redeem all things. He had to live perfectly. And when he died and rose again and ascended and poured out his spirit at Pentecost, he gave his church the ability to fulfill this mandate mandate this task once again and that is why we can now go and be those instruments of reconciliation all authority has been given to the king you are the king's children you are the king's vassals you are his ambassadors we do not go forward despairing pessimistic and hopeless we go forward in hope Our duty is to busy ourselves with the work of the king. These are the days of the king. These are the days where we go into the world and continue to bring the lordship of Jesus Christ into all things in life. But let's look a little bit at how we actually accomplish that because you still might ask, what does that really mean? How do we really live that out? Well, a good king never sends his troops into battle without a war plan. A good contractor never gives his builders, a sends his builders to build without a design plan. God gave structure. God gave order. God gave a plan, and we see it here in the text. Notice, when he's commissioning here, he doesn't single out Peter. He doesn't single out Philip or Matthew. He says, to all the disciples there, all of you are to go. All of you, this commission applies to you as the body. We're the body here today. We are a corporate group. The commission was given to the body not to one specific individual and that is important. It's important because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 through 14 to insist that the hand is to see and the foot is to hear is contrary to God's design, and is simply put, very unhelpful. Right? Really, what this means is that every Christian has a different role in the body. There are mechanics, there are teachers, there are preachers, there are bankers, there are engineers, there are farmers. There are all kinds of roles inside of this body with different giftings, and you are not sinning or necessarily being negligent just because you haven't personally shared Jesus five times today. I get people who ask this all the time, especially in Nigeria. See, in Nigeria, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. And what tends to happen is the moment someone's converted, even though they haven't been discipled, they are told by the person who God used to convert them that they now have to go and start preaching and teaching everyone. But they're not trained. They don't really know what the word means. They're coming from a pagan background. Some of us here, maybe we're new to the faith, And we come with all kinds of baggage, all kinds of burdens. And we come with a lot of silly ideas. I did, when I became a Christian, even though I was trained by a theologian. When I became a Christian, I had been an atheist for a long time, and I had some weird ideas in my head. And see, we read the Bible from the perspective of ourselves. The Lord will lead, but we need teachers. This is why you have a pastor. This is why you have teaching elders. This is why you have church history classes. Very important, by the way. To know your history, the history of your church. We are taught so that we can teach others. But not everyone's a teacher. Not everyone's a preacher. And that's not wrong. The church doesn't do mission. The church is mission. The church is a missional body. And there are different parts of that body. For the body to function well, my finger started doing what my mouth did. That would be really odd. If the brake pads on a car started doing what the piston did, I don't know how that car would function at all. We have different abilities for a reason. And that reason is so that the body can function well. If you are a mechanic, engineer, farmer, husband, father, whatever it might be that God has called you to, part of your calling is to do your work in your area of life with excellence And to support the teachers, support the pastors, support those who are the mouth. The mouthpiece needs your support to function, to teach, to preach, to counsel, to evangelize. But the mouthpiece in response, the pastors, the teachers, and so forth, they are supposed to nourish the body. They're supposed to equip the body so that you, wherever you are in whatever station of life God has placed you, can do your work with such rigor, such excellence, that people cannot help but come to the table. They cannot help but wonder, how is it that you do this like this? You know, I I heard a story just the other week in a small town not far from here of of, of an elderly man. He he was in this town. He was a, a computer software technician. And he was known in the town to be superb at his work. Fantastic. And so, whenever someone came into this small town, you know, small towns, everybody knows each other, and they would always, and if they needed help, they would send them over to this man. And so, one day, in particular, this, someone was sent to this man, and neither the people who went, they weren't Christians, and they came to him, and they needed help, and so they brought their computer, and they were just, they were frantic. We can't get this fixed. You know, we, we need it now. We need it, and like, we're going somewhere. I, I can't remember the small details, but it needed to be fixed now, and they were willing to pay anything at all. Now, I come from Nigeria, where if they, you tell them and you come in a bit frantically, and I think that might be similar here, you need something fixed now? What does that mean to the price? It's going up. I've got you where I want you. I can, I can really charge what I want for this. So he fixes it. He doesn't ask anything about money. He doesn't tell them a price. He fixes it. And they come out, and they're like, what is it? 2000 1500 anything I'll pay. He says $100. He said, no, no. He writes them a check, $5,000. Please take it. You've, you, you have no idea what this has done. Rips up the check in their presence and says, I refuse. $100. He said, what? And his wife comes up, and she's kind of, I guess she was a bit frantic, and as we find out later in the story, there's a health issue going on. And, and, and they're like, no, no, please, please take it. Take it. You've really helped. He says, no, $100. So he pays them $100. They leave. And they come back a few hours later because as they're leaving... And she's frustrated. Something's going on. And I guess she starts vocalizing it out loud. And he says to her, if Job could get through what he went through, you could get through what you went through. And they leave. Didn't say anything to it. Well, a few days later, they come back. And they're looking for him. And his wife is in the back of the shop saying, hey, there's these people here. They want you. And he's kind of concerned. Oh, did I do something wrong? And upset. So he goes out to the front. And they're, sitting, they're standing there, and the wife runs up, gives them a big hug, and said, you've saved my life. You have no idea. In that moment, because of the way you did your work, you refused to take it, and you made me think of this person, Job. They weren't Christians. She went to the next store. I think it was Hobby Lobby, actually, or something like that. Found a Bible, opened it up, because she didn't know who Job was. Started to read through the story of Job. And the Lord used that to reach this woman, and she became a Christian through that. He did his work with excellence, and so his witness was taken seriously. He was the man that everyone went to. This is how Christians are to behave. This is discipling the nations in his sphere of life. He's not a teacher. He's not a preacher. You don't need to be. If you're a farmer, you should be the best farmer you can possibly be. The most honorable, honest farmer that you can possibly be. If you are a mechanic... You should be the mechanic that when someone comes into town, everyone knows Joe's auto. He is the best. He is honorable. He will not cheat you. That is how you do your discipleship, wherever you are, in whatever station. Because when you, as the body, when you're the hands, the feet, when you're the organs, when you live honorably, when you live with excellence in your life, it also allows the mouthpiece to be heard. No one wants to listen if you're not first the hands and the feet. If you first don't live excellently excellently in your sphere of life, people are not inclined to listen. Now, this does mean or sorry, this doesn't mean that if you're not a teacher, if you're not a pastor, you shouldn't have to give a defense, no. Peter Peter tells us and don't forget he was a fisherman. He's not a trained, educated man. He hasn't done his seminary degrees. He's not a capable writer. He's not a gifted speaker. Peter is the one who tells us, always be ready to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is in you, wherever you are in life. That doesn't mean we all need to be trained apologists, trained teachers, that everywhere you go, you have to be thinking, I need to tell them about Jesus, and if I don't, this little nagging thing in the back of me, I'm going to go home with it, and I've failed. Well, sometimes you need to listen to that voice. But if you're not gifted in that capacity, your most gifted, gifted ministry is where you are in life. Where has he placed you? We are a body We have different parts, and we need to function together. When you live excellence in your area of life, it allows your pastor to be effective as one of the mouthpieces, perhaps the primary one. And, of course, let's continue through the text. We see then that Christ says, disciple these nations. And we're talking a bit about discipleship here. But then he gives us, two specific requirements as part of this. He says, baptize them and teach them all things that I have commanded. Teaching and baptizing the nations is not simply saving souls. But as we've been saying, it's bringing the entire people and all that they do under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at that word, nations. Right? In the Greek, the word is ethne. Right? That literally translates nations, in particular, right? Ethne is the word from where we, from which we get ethnicity. And when you ask a person, "What is your ethnicity?", really, what you're asking them is, "What people group do you long to, belong to? What, what, what's your identity? What's your background? Who are you?" And what then is a nation but a shared culture? We you know that. That's the definition that that sociologists have used, and, and before them, historians and philosophers have used for eons. A nation is a shared culture. What is Christ demanding here? Is He demanding just individual souls? No. He's demanding the entire culture serve Him. Sometimes apologists state it this way today. We are in the culture wars. The entire culture of America is under the lordship of Jesus Christ whether they bow to Him or not. He expects you to serve Him. He expects you to serve Him in your household. He expects you to serve Him in your business. He expects you to serve Him in your community, in your county, in your schools. And He expects your government to serve and bow the knee to Him as well. Everything is under His authority. He governs through a church because different parts of the body take Christ into those different parts areas of life. The person who stands up here is the one to equip you to do that. But then you take him wherever you are stationed. And again, he makes his intentions very clear when he says, baptize them and teach them all things I have commanded. We, we sometimes miss what he's getting at when he says, baptize them. Right? Because again, we're in, a, we're in a culture that has inherited Christian values a Christian moral ethos, a Christian heritage. I can tell you though, again, in a nation where it doesn't have a Christian a long Christian heritage at least, we've forgotten what it means to be baptized. You go to when he's telling his apostles to be baptized. That's a strong political statement at that time. Okay, because in the Roman world, and I think some of us know this a bit, when you were baptized and you were a professed Christian, quite quickly after this, you're persecuted for that baptism. And you will die for that baptism. Why? Because in the Roman times, right, when Rome transitioned from, a, from a, what we call, I guess, from a, um, a republic to an empire, and it began with Julius Caesar, they initiated what was called the imperial cult. Okay? You had to bow to Caesar. Caesar was Lord. That was the profession of faith that you had to make if you were to engage in the public marketplace, in the transactions of the economy. You needed to confess that Caesar was Lord. We're all familiar, at least many of us would be, with that biblical saying, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Right? Many of us know that? That was written on Roman coins with Caesar's face on it. It was, an, it was a Latin expression. There's no other name under heaven by which we are saved but Caesar's. When Peter says that, it's political rebellion. He is defying a tyrant when he takes that and appropriates it and says, eh, I'm going to redeem that saying. Just as they redeemed the cross and they wore that cross. These were political defiance, opposing tyrants. And they were killed for that. Are we willing to die for our faith? Are we willing to oppose tyrants who are taking away our Christian liberties that are handed to us by God for our faith? I know a lot of people in a different part of the world who are very willing to die for that faith, who are willing to leave their families, their shared culture as as Muslims, be baptized into Christ and have to flee for their lives every single moment of the day because the Islamic State is chasing them. Are we willing to do that? especially as we are entering into a time in our nations, in the West, where we have increasingly hostile governments who have a deep hatred for the church, and they've been vocal about it. Are we willing to take those steps and, be, and stand that gap because we're ruled not by them? Okay? Doesn't matter which party you belong to, neither of them are your authority. You are ruled by the king of kings. His authority has been given to you to go. Whether the state tells you to or not, it doesn't matter. Baptism is a sign and seal of identity. Actually, in Revelation 13, verse 17, you see it mentioned. It says there that mark of the beast would keep people from buying and trading in the marketplace, and that's exactly what happened in the first century. Christians were kept out of the marketplace. They were not allowed because they didn't have that little card, that license, identifying that they had bowed to Caesar. Would you do that? Would we do that? Or have we sometimes gotten a bit too comfortable? I often am challenged by that by Africans who have nothing, are being hostil- hostilityly, it's not even a word, but persecuted. And they have so much joy. They go into church services and they're jumping and dancing every little way. And I'm there over with them and they're, I'm like, I don't have that joy. What is that? Well, I'm still coming from the West and I still have a lot of that baggage and I still assume, well, I don't, it's too much. Relax. Come on. Life's not that good, is it? They think it is. And they've got nothing. You know what they have? A king, a shepherd who loves them. And they know that they will be protected by him. That he will answer their prayers. It's amazing, the prayer lives of Nigerians. Everything's a matter of prayer, diligently. And the Lord gets them through day to day in ways that I still can't quite fathom. The statements Christ are making are all-encompassing, my friends. He's demanding total allegiance and how exactly you know we baptize sure we you know this that's a that's an identity statement right your entire identity is under me what's the next step well he gives it to us here in the text teaching them all things that I have commanded you again all things now we don't get to pick and choose what we see in the Bible we don't get to focus on the red letters we don't just get to focus on the New Testament the entire Word of God Right? All Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, for all godly living. All Scripture. And remember, when Jesus is teaching the Scriptures, when He's quoting the Scriptures, the New Testament wasn't written yet. What's He quoting? The Old. He's faithfully expositing the Old Testament. If we want to live out godly lives in wherever we are, in every stations of life, if we want our nation... Which he did, he's demanded to serve him, then we must teach the entire word, whether it offends or not. And we live in a time where I mean, goodness, Jesus was willing to offend. Why did they kill him? He was offensive, horribly so. Right? he was so offensive that they had to kill him, and they didn't want to wait for it. Right, you always have to when you picture these scenes, and where Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders of the day and they're scheming and conniving how do we get him and then they finally throw something at him and boom like a lightning bolt he responds <laughs> right you have to imagine standing there if you're an, another Jew in the area oh you would be laughing you would think it's hysterical plus Jesus uses some pretty harsh terms at times he doesn't mince words he's willing to say what needs to be said to those who are arrogant and rebellious but then he also knows how to be very gentle Tender and kind with his sheep. Sometimes we overemphasize one or the other. Some of us like to be really gung-ho. Oh, that was me when I was in my university days. Just wanted to hit everyone as fast as possible with the truth of the gospel. And God's got a sense of irony. He sticks me in the backwaters of Nigeria and says, be my hands and feet and shut up. Well, that's him. But some of us, in our culture too, we always just want to show the gentleness, the love, the compassion, and the moment we're confronted, we step back. That's not our Lord. Our Lord is a king. And even when he was the Jesus who can do nothing on my own strength, he still was willing to stand firm to the heretics, to the tyrants, to the false religious leaders of his day, and defend them and call them out, no matter what the cost. We are to teach all things that Christ has commanded us in in every area of our life. So again, if that means a mechanic, then what is the Bible? How will that inform your work? Go into it. I'm trained in apologetics, so one thing I love to do is I love to read the Bible and see what it has to say about mathematics. It says a lot. You'll find calculus in the book of Numbers. right? Or I like to find out what does the books of Leviticus say about health and medicine? Or, what does it say about science? It says a great deal about quantum theory and special relativity, if you're a scientist or a physicist in this room, or you have a a proclivity towards that. It says a lot. you just got to look at it. you got to look deeply. It says a lot about all these areas of life. Good farmers know that the Bible says quite a bit about that, too. About how to treat the land, how to treat livestock. One... um, Health experts said that if you follow the diet in Leviticus, you'll be the healthiest person in the world. I don't think it's a pleasant diet to follow, but it's extremely healthy, fascinatingly enough. Right? We are called to take the gospel into every area of our life. What does the Bible say about your area? Sometimes mothers will come and one thing they'll ask me is, But I'm with the children all day. What, how does this? I don't think there's some, sometimes I think that might be the most important job. What's more important than discipling the next generation of young ones to be strong Christian leaders in wherever they are supposed to be put? One theologian put it really well. He said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. I think there's a deep truth in that. What is more important than producing godly young ones who can look at a culture that's hostile to God and realize it and not be swayed by all the temptations, all the seductive imageries of our modern technocratic information age, but can analyze it and say, no, this is falsehood. This does not follow what the word says, and fight against it and rebuild at the same time. The excellence in our lives is our first witness, whether you're a mother, you're a father, your a mechanic, or a farmer, my friends. But of course, naturally, and Jesus knew that as humans, we are frail. We can know this, we can hear a sermon and be like, yeah, that's true, let's do it. And then all of a sudden, we're back in our normal day-to-day lives, and we're distracted. And we see something happening on the street again, or we see something, another, another bit of news coming down the pipeline. And oh boy, here it is again, more of that. And it's discouraging, it is, I know. So Jesus knows that. A good king knows that. A good king, who's a general is leading troops into warfare and is giving them a war commission, really, he knows that the mentality or the, um, the morale of the troops will wither under heavy fighting conditions. So as a good king, a good leader into battle, he, ends the, he leaves them with this. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of days. Some of your versions will say, to the end of the age. Some of yours will say... Uh, until the days are fulfilled I want us to get the Greek the meaning in the original right? again, our English translation sometimes we lose the real understanding of the text in the original, the, the most literal meaning is until all is complete I will be with you until all is complete what all? until this commission I've given you, until this mustard seed is finished spreading, don't Fear. The war is yours. I've already had victory on the cross. What did he do when he died? He bound the strong man in his ministry. When he was casting out demons and working miracles, what was he doing but exercising authority over the rebe- the rebels, over this so-called kingdom of Satan's? He's exercising his authority. He's casting them out, and he's saying, No, go. Do not be fearful. Do not be discouraged. For I will be with you until that task I've given you is complete. In history, we see the rise and fall of men's kingdoms. And we must never make the mistake of identifying God's kingdom with one of these. I've heard a lot of people say, well, America's collapsing. Therefore, it's either the end of the world. I hear this all the time. America is not the kingdom of God. It is a blessed nation. It is an amazing nation in the history of the church, in the history of Christendom. But God's doing something wonderful in the rest of the world too, my friends. Don't get sapped into the bubble that if America collapses, it's the end. That's not where we're at. There is no room for pessimism in this commission. This is why the apostles could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he's given assurance of the victory of his kingdom. So go, in whatever station of life God has you, take Christ and his word into your area of life, so that every area of life may be made new. And as you diligently serve God, wherever you find yourself, his kingdom will be established in your life, in your home, in your business, in your school in your communities, and in your government as well. Christ saved the world. He did not fail. So let us build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.